listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Uh, we are in the midst of a series here called Centered, um, and this is all about Jesus Christ, the center of the Christian faith, and we're looking at his life, his miracles, his teachings, and right now we're into his parables which parables are just small stories with big ideas. Um, Sometimes you hear them described as earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And man, these have uh, power to rip us up on the inside, don't they? Um, Jesus was one of the best storytellers ever, and he he knew the power of story for getting at some of the deepest parts of us. And, uh, There's something that I've realized over the course of my time as a pastor and as a therapist and a counselor. Um, I've realized there's certain things that people don't want to talk about. And if you have any of those things, there's certain issues that are just like, "Uh uh-uh, don't don't touch that area, okay? Um, A wise man recently told me, I was talking to him about how to develop authentic community in small groups, because as you know, I'm the associate pastor here, and I, I am in charge of small groups and trying to get people connected to each other and to God. And uh, I said, you know, how do, it's really hard to get really good community going these days. And, and he said, well, you know, Dave, the, the best way to do that is just when you start, have everybody get in a circle and have everybody talk about their sex life and how much money they make and what they're spending it on. And then everything else will be really easy. And, uh, I, of course, I laughed and I said, you know, well, that would get everybody out of our small groups really fast. But... Um, there is something to that. There's certain areas of our lives that we're just so protected, aren't there? Um, that, that are just like, we, we're not going to talk about those things. And the cool thing about Jesus is that he has no problem going right there. He has no problem addressing the things that need to be addressed. And often in those more secretive places of our lives are the, are the things that keep us from God, are the, are the private sins that keep us from the full relationship that God wants with us. And so Jesus goes right at those things, and today he's going to address the very difficult issue of money and possessions. Um, This will be difficult for all of us. It's been a very difficult week for me, and I told the elders, don't be surprised if I come up for prayer again today, uh, because this is a a convicting parable just to read it, um, let alone to unpack it and to preach on it. And so my prayer is that you would not um, be offended with Jesus Christ as he does this, but you'd see his love for you. You know what I mean? You ever have a best friend that says, I'm going to be your best friend right now, and he just or she just tells you exactly what you needed to hear, but it's painful? That's what Jesus is doing here. He's loving you in a way that very few people are willing to love you by addressing the things that need to be addressed in your life. He's confronting the things that really need to be confronted. And so I pray that as the Scripture speaks to you, as Jesus Christ himself speaks to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would say, I'm loved. Wow, he loves me enough to say these hard things to me. You know, I used to get so um, upset when the Holy Spirit would bring conviction on my heart, and I would shame myself for days and beat myself up, and now I'm just like, praise God, I'm still his child. You know, he, he loves me. Um, and I, I feel it more often now than I ever have. And, and, and so now I see it as he's correcting me, he's loving me, he's leading me, he's guiding me. The Bible says the Lord loves those who he disciplines. He chastens his children. And so we need to look at this parable in that light, that, that Jesus Christ loves us enough to address some very difficult things. So let's go to Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through 21, and then we'll dive into this parable. Here we are in Luke chapter 12. This is the parable of the rich fool. Beginning at verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, meaning Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you. It's, it's convicting and sobering just to read this. Um, so we need you to come and open up our hearts so that we can hear this, this hard word from Jesus to us. Uh, I pray that this hard would, word would make us soft people, that this would make us um, attentive to something very, very important, that we would feel your love for us as you correct us and you guide us and you lead us in the way everlasting, that we'd see your caution as the most loving thing that you could do here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, as you could feel, just reading this parable, I mean, it makes me want to just pray and start repenting. I mean, this thing is, this is a hard word from Jesus. Um, we're going to walk through this line by line, and I want you to see three big things. I want you to see a strong warning here from Jesus. One of the strongest warnings that he could possibly give. It's full of exclamatory language. He is trying to wake you up. He's hitting you over the head. He's saying, Pastor Dave, he's saying, Life Church, you need to wake up. Then we see an unexpected example. There's always something unexpected in parables, and Jesus is true to form here in this one. And then thirdly, a call from Jesus to do the opposite. So let's begin in verse 13. So someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Okay, so this is a really common request that people would make of a, a rabbi or a teacher because they knew the Torah, they knew the Old Testament law, and it dealt with things like inheritance. So this is a respectful request this man is making to Jesus, but he sidetracks him because he's like, I want to go at the heart issue here. I want to address a really, really big issue for all human beings. I'm going to go right at the thing that I want to talk about. And he says this, um, verse 15, Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of of greed. You know, why is Jesus so spirited here? Why is he so fired up? It's just, it's just exclamatory. It's almost like he's grabbing them and shaking them and saying, you guys need to watch out. You need to wake up. You need to listen. You need to pay attention here. You are the one struggling with this. It's not those other people. You need to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why is he so, why is he so adamant? Why is he so fired up? It's because none of us think that we struggle with this. Not a single one of us think we struggle with greed. Greed, one of the hallmarks of the sin of greed is that it cloaks itself. It's like the carbon monoxide of sin. It it creeps in. It's, It's odorless and tasteless. You can't feel when you're infected by it. Other people might be able to see it in your life, but you can't tell. 
And the reason why we're so immune to it is we're constantly comparing ourselves with those who have more than us. I mean, do a little thought experiment with me. Who comes to your mind when you think of greedy people? Who comes to your mind? Just throw out some names. Anybody got a name? I mean, Donald Trump comes to my mind. He's greedy. He's got a lot of stuff, lots of airplanes and and different buildings and and different corporations and ownership. Who else comes to your mind? Who's that? Bill Gates. Bill Gates gives a lot away, though. But, you know, Bill Gates is the richest man, obviously, but he gives a lot away. Um, So Bill Gates comes to my mind, and then I'm like, yeah, but Bill's, you know, busy giving stuff away, too. Who's that? Oprah, yeah. We, we typically think of people that just have tons of money and possessions, right? We never think of ourselves. We're never like, greedy person, me. You know? And that's why this sin is so dangerous, because it cloaks itself. We don't think we have it because we're always comparing ourselves with those who have more. We're never like, you know, look at me compared to the people that live in a mud hut in Swaziland. That's got gaps in it that snakes can call, crawl through. Dirt floors. We never do that. Usually we even, oftentimes we just say, the person right above us, that's who we compare ourselves to. Your brother-in-law or sister-in-law. Well, they have a bigger house. Or they have a nicer boat. Or they have nicer cars. So I'm, I'm obviously not greedy. Jesus is going right at this idea. You know, if, if I were to say, you know, before I started preaching on this, you know, in announcements, hey, we're going to have a time of prayer for a very, very important thing tonight. Um, we're going to offer prayer for everyone struggling with greed. How many of you would show it up tonight? I wouldn't have. It's a beautiful day. I've got things to do. And that's not, my big, that's not my struggle, man. You know, that's not my issue. I, I would have said it, no. I don't, I don't think I... But if we would offer prayer for lust, okay, we're going to get some people there. For anger, we're going to get some people there. Maybe for envy or jealousy. But greed, no. Because we obviously don't struggle with that. It's the carbon monoxide sin. Nobody thinks they have it. So Jesus is saying, wake up. I'm talking to you here. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, Pastor Dave. Just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you're not greedy. You got issues, man. You need to wake up. You need to hear this. This is a life and death issue for all of us. So he's going right at us. Now let's notice that Jesus says to be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Yes, that's bad news. There is more than one kind. So let's talk about greed for a few minutes here. The word there is pleonexia. It means the desire to have more. It's like this inner grasping that's never satisfied. Okay, That's what it means to be greedy. Now, Rebecca DeYoung, she's a theologian. Uh, She teaches at Calvin College now, and she writes this great book called Glittering Vices um, on the seven deadly sins and their remedies. This will be in our library. This should come with a warning. Okay? Um, I've been like headlong into this stuff for the last couple weeks, and man, it's, it is convicting stuff, but a great book on sanctification, really. Asking the Holy Spirit to free us from the vices and lead us toward virtue. Something that's not preached a lot in the church anymore is holiness. Living as God has called us to live as Christian people. And we tend to psychologize and, and, and excuse and minimize our sin. She's saying, no, we need to confront it, repent from it, and press towards virtue. I love the book. It's great. She says in here about greed, because greed is one of the seven capital vices or one of the seven deadly sins. She says, the greedy person's attachment to wealth can wear many faces. An overflowing shopping cart or a single purchase. A stock portfolio that's aggressive or conservative. A wallet full of credit cards or a safety deposit box with a few carefully guarded treasures. 
a garage full of expensive cars, or a closet jam full of good deals. It can affect the young, the old, and everyone in between. And Young goes on to explain that we have even more difficulty with this vice in our culture, in, in consumeristic, um, capitalistic America economy, because um, greed is the psychological fuel for, for most of what we do. We've got we to recognize that. Now, I'm not condemning getting bonuses, and I'm not condemning going up the corporate ladder. Man, you go up that corporate ladder and kill it. You know, but use it for God's purposes. But you have to recognize that a lot of the fuel, the psychological fuel for what we do in America is greed-based. I mean, nobody at your work says, hey, if you do a really great job, we're going to give you a pat on the back. No, they say, you'll get this bonus, you'll get this bonus. I know, I've been in corporate America. I don't go for things other than money. I want to make extra money. You can motivate me by extra money. I had the most powerful example of this this greed being the psychological fuel for our capitalistic, consumeristic culture in college. I was so greedy in college. And, uh, man, praise God. You know, I was just thinking about this this week, how God, you know, rescued me. But I got into this internet business, okay? And one of, I get really excited about things easily. And one of my buddies got me into this, and he's like, dude, this internet business thing is exploding. And right now, if you get in at age 19, you'll be a millionaire by the time you're in your 30s. You'll be able to retire, make six figures passively. And I'm, this is no joke. His dad had done it. His dad was, was there making six figures passively. And so I'm like, hey, the facts check out. I'm in. I'm going to quit this biology crap and get, and get into this thing and make a lot of money. You know? And I'm f- picturing my fishing boat already. And I'm picturing all the nice cars I'm going to have and the great big mansion. And all of a sudden, greed really starts to grab a hold of my heart. It's a vice because it's a habitual sin that eventually ingrains itself on your DNA. Okay? So I started imagining all this money and all the stuff that I was going to get. And I became quite greedy. And one day, the Holy Spirit snapped me out of it because I was listening to a tape. And this business, you, your business for self, so you have to self-motivate. So you listen to all these weird little tapes. And... Um, I'm listening to this tape on how to grow your business and stuff. And uh, this guy that's doing this tape is, is one of the guys that I really respected, a devout Christian man for a long time. And he's teaching about how to grow your business. And he says, the most important thing that you do is you need to build motivation. Just what DeYoung's talking about here, that psychological fuel, brain fuel. You need to get that. And here's how you do it. You do it by dream building, which is a nice way for saying coveting your neighbor's stuff. Okay. But you dream build. You drive around town. You look at the really nice houses in town. You say, oh, that's the house that I want. You go and look at your, your, your friend's boat, and you say, oh, that's the boat I want. You go in to the new car lot, and you say, that's the car I want. You put pictures up all over your house. And then when you wake up, it's on the fridge, and you're like, that's what's motivating me today. So I'm going to make calls, and I'm going to run my business. I'm going to do my little thing. And it's, to- it's just totally ingraining itself on your heart, this greed. And he said, this is what the turning point was for me. He says, I really wanted a Cadillac. And so he said, I, I printed out a picture of a Cadillac and I put it on my fridge and I put it in the bathroom so I'd see it when I wake up. And then I'd go to the car lot and I'd sit in the Cadillac and I'd smell the new smell of that car. And I just, I, he's like, I got it inside of me. And I wanted that Cadillac so bad that I would do anything to get it. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit was like, wake up. That's idolatry. That is going to drag you down the wrong path. And this is a devout Christian man. He's like, you're nowhere near been following me as long as this guy has. And he's totally up to his neck in greed. And I was like, I'm out. I'm done. I, can't, I don't need that. The Holy Spirit rescued me. 
It was just, it was just like a rescue mission. Like, okay, let's go get Dave before he kills himself. <laughs> Praise God for his grace. I pray that maybe that grace would fall on some of you today. Now, greed is called one of the, the seven capital vices. It's called a vice because, like I said, it's an ingrained hab- habitual pattern of sin. Okay? And it's, it's a habit of the soul that is directly opposed to the Christian virtue of generosity. All right? It destroys and erodes the, the virtue of generosity in our lives. And Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century church father, he put generosity opposite of greed, but he called it something different. He used the Latin word, which is very interesting. And he used the Latin word liberality, which is where we get our word for liberty. So we understand that greed is not just something that God says, hey, you need to avoid this because I don't like that. Avoiding greed is all about your freedom. It's all about ripping the stuffed demons off of your heart that want to destroy your life and drag you to hell. It's about liberty. Being a generous person is about liberty, okay? So remember that Jesus speaks of multiple types of greed, and Aristotle taught that there were two main types, and both types seek to destroy the virtue of generosity or liberality in your life. So let's look at both types. Now, as we go through these, you should be convicted if you have a pulse. All right? But don't be condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I see myself all over in this stuff. All right? Um, just repent of it, and let's, let's, get, let's get this out in the open. The first one is called prodigality. It's the first main type of greed. This is coveting riches to waste them. All right? I know you people out there. This is carelessness for the real value of things and their worth. So you really don't care. But you just want money and stuff so you can blow it on yourself. The best example in the Bible is, of course, Luke 15, the prodigal son. That's where we get the name prodigality. So this guy wants money. He wants riches so he can party, so he can sleep around, so he can drink and eat and be merry. That's prodigality, right? You habitually blow all your income, all your resources on yourself, your pleasures, your, your trinkets and trifles, whatever you want to enjoy. It can have many different faces. Okay? Um, but I would say that most of us have, have this kind of um, greed. Most of us really, a lot of us really struggle with this greed in America because we're pushed there. Every TV ad says, this is what's going to bring you enjoyment. Your greed is based out of a desire for pleasure. Your greed is totally found in a desire for pleasure and enjoyment. You think life is found in stuff and riches and enjoyment. And it's not. This type of greed is entirely selfish. There's no thought given to others or to God as your provider. And it's rooted in pride. Prodigality you could be described as the do-it-yourself plan for happiness. You don't need God for your happiness. You just go make a whole bunch of money. Get a whole bunch of toys. Go live it up. Go lay on a beach somewhere, have someone rub your back and drink a little drink with an umbrella in it. That's how you find happiness. You don't need God. So that's why it's rooted in pride. Actually, all the vices have their root in pride, which C.S. Lewis calls the great sin. Prodigality, you waste stuff completely on yourself. The second type, which is opposite of that, is called illiberality. This person delights simply to acquire riches and stuff that they never intend to use. All right? You're the people with great big collections of things. Um, you gather things. It could be garage sale stuff. Um, I, I saw a, a woman at our garage sale this past couple weeks 
and she was looking at a shirt, and she, I'll never forget this. She said, I have 20, she said this to her friends. She didn't know I was listening. She said, I have 20 unopened bags of garage sale clothes at home, but I can't pass up this shirt. I thought, oh, Lord Jesus, help us. You know, this is you. You can't pass up a deal. There's something internal that says, I need this. I need stuff. It might not be garage sale stuff or good deals, though. It could be cars. It could be toys. And you don't really ever use them. They're, they're, just, they're just there. They're kind of a security, kind of a fortress around you. It could be bank accounts, retirement accounts. You just stockpile money and you, and you pile it up so high that you feel like your stuff, your possessions, your money is an impenetrable fortress. Because this type of greed, illiberality, is not about pleasure It's about security. This is all about security. You want to feel safe. You want to feel safe. C.S. Lewis said, we succumb to covetousness and greed primarily because we want to construct security shelters. We want to live free from dependency, especially any dependency on God. Isn't that true? Isn't that a longing of our hearts? Am I alone here that I struggle with this? He said, though the love of money is the root of all evil, the desire for security to be exempt from reversals and misfortunes explains money's allure. We want to be able to plan for everything. Well, what if this happens? I got a billion dollars in the bank. No big deal. What if this happens? Oh, I got this insurance. I got this thing. I got this stuff. What if the car breaks down? I got 10 more cars. Cool. I'm good there. You don't need God. You covet, acquire, and hoard because you want to feel safe and you're trusting in your money and your possessions to provide the security that only God can. And I hate to admit it, but this is me. This one is me. More than prodigality, I'm illiberality, unfortunately. Prodigality is more fun. But this one is me. I like security. I hate dependency. It's ironic that I'm a pastor. Um, Because that's one of the biggest things that I hated about becoming a pastor is you feel way more dependent on God. Now, I was fooling myself to think that you all are not dependent on God for your living. But I was like, why would I want to go into a situation where I'm dependent upon God moving upon people's hearts to be generous so that I can feed my family? That sounds like torture. I mean, doesn't it? To an illiberal person, that sounds like torture. That's no security at all. Because people are fickle. I'm fickle. You probably are too. So I have to trust in God. But so do you. That's what I realized a long way into it. I'm like, well, everybody else, they're in the same boat. They have to trust God too. And illiberality is an attempt to remove God from your life because you don't need to be dependent on anyone. Not even God. I hate dependency, but I'm learning. Now, note how this one is also rooted in pride because it's the do-it-yourself dependency plan. It's the self-sufficiency plan. Um, It's the do-it-yourself security plan. I don't need anybody. I got me. I'll take care of myself. Thank you very much. Not even God. I don't think it's a coincidence that the scriptures often talk about fear in correlation with avoiding greed. It's interesting. Right after Jesus gets done with this parable, he goes right into worry. Because, friends, Jesus is not after your stuff. I don't know if you know that about Jesus yet. He's a homeless guy. Right? He's not after these people's stuff. He's not like, Peter, take up an offering right after I get done here. Because it's going to be a good one. He's a homeless guy. He's talking to a bunch of people about money because he knows it so grips their hearts and he's after their hearts. He's connected to your heart. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be in Matthew. Sometimes for us, our greed is born out of fear. 
and worry and not trusting God. Now, as you can imagine, both types of greed have terrible consequences for us and others. I want to list three main ones. The first one is that it destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our trust relationship with God. All types of greed destroy it because it is a replacement of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and Ephesians 5, verse 5, call it idolatry. And you might say, oh, aren't we being a bit dramatic here, Pastor Dave? You know, to call greed idolatry. I mean, struggling with money and keeping stuff. No, it's, it's called idolatry for a reason. And Mark Twain actually put it the best. He wrote in his revised catechism, what is the chief end of man? To get rich. In what way? Dishonestly, if we can. Honestly, if we must. Who is God? The one and only true? Money is God. Gold and greenbacks and stock. Father, son, and ghosts of the same. Three persons in one. These are the true and only God, mighty and supreme. Now we say, how blasphemous of Mark Twain. How could he do such a thing? But Mark Twain just saying with his mouth, or with his pen, what we often say with our lives. Yes, I confess Jesus as Lord, but money is really my God. And it says it loudly with our lives when we grip our stuff so tightly, when we refuse to give, when we say, no, I need that, when we say, no, I need that pleasure, that's my goal in life. So we say, we claim to follow Jesus Christ, but it's clearly that money is our God, just as it was for Twain. Number two, so not, not only does greed destroy our relationship with God, but greed also causes us to commit other sins that we wouldn't ordinarily just go commit. You know, it causes us to lie and cheat and steal. But think of some of the more innocent ones that we tend to applaud in our culture, like workaholism. That's driven ultimately by greed. You know, a lot of times, you're just working all the time, and we say, man, you've got such a great work ethic. Man, look what you're doing. Look what you're accomplishing. But you're destroying your family. You're neglecting your children. You know, you're neglecting your spouse. That's not honorable, and that's not Christian. And sometimes, sometimes we, we're not even aware of our own level of greed that affects these kinds of things, that causes us and leads us to these other kinds of sins. So greed clearly causes us to do other things that we would not normally do. Thirdly and lastly, greed does not just feed our wants, it tramples others' needs. Thomas Aquinas said, In this way, avarus, which is another name for greed, is a sin directly against one's neighbor. Since one person cannot overabound in external riches without another person lacking them, for temporal goods cannot be possessed by many at the same time. Now, I've never seen this more brilliantly illustrated than when we are in Swaziland. Because the king of Swaziland is one of the richest people in the world. Thirteen amazing mansions. Just to put our stuff to shame. For each one of his thirteen wives. Okay? And he has unbelievable riches. Everything is just unbelievable rich. But his country is bankrupt. Most of his people live in unspeakable poverty. Many of his children are, in his country are dying of preventable diseases, things like waterborne illnesses. And a lot of other countries are saying, hey, dude, we'll help you, but we're not going to help you unless there's some sort of political reform. And he's like, no way. The last remaining absolute monarchy on earth is Swaziland. And why is that? Because of greed. He gives up the last remaining monarchy. He gives up his stuff. And it's not happening. Not unless Jesus breaks in. You need to pray for him. But we also need to hear this today. Because we are the most wealthy people on the earth. I was talking to some of you before about this. 
This is not about King Maswati in Swaziland. This is about you and I, who have way, way more than most of the people on the earth. Most people on earth live on about $2 a day, uh, over half the world. You know? So we are filthy, stinking rich, according to you know, world standards. So Jesus is talking to us here. Our greed tramples on their need. So what are we going to do about it? Of course, Jesus' desire for us is that we live free. Okay? He wants us to live in liberality, generosity. Generous people are internally free. This is how you define a gen- generous person. They're internally free from their attachment to money and wealth. They're internally free. It's easy for them to give it. They can steward it well, but they don't really view it as their own. They're internally free. They're not possessed by their possessions, but rather they hold them loosely and give them with pleasure to those in need. That's the, that's the liberal person, not the left wing. We're not speaking of it in that term. Aquinas is talking about liberal as in term of liberality, the free person. Stuff demons don't have a hold on their heart. Aquinas says that liberal people are commendable because in general, they give away more than they keep. Period. And that just smacked me like a ton of bricks this past week. Liberal people give away more than they keep. I mean, sometimes you can feel like you're pretty generous if you give away some stuff that you weren't really using. But Aquinas says, you're, you're, you're starting, to, starting to tread on generosity when you're giving away more than you keep. He goes on, he says, um, he assumes that most of one's income and possessions are not to be spent upgrading one's own lifestyle, but to be given away. Friends, this is not obvious to us in our culture. And this wasn't obvious to those in Jesus' culture either. Just because they live in Jesus' day doesn't make them better than us. They, they were like, oh, so when we get more, that's not you know, a license for us to upgrade? Jesus is confronting that. That's why we have to watch out and be on our guard against all kinds of greed. Now, back to the parable. That's just point one. The next two points are not nearly as long. Verse 15. Jesus says this. He says, Life does not consist of an abundant of, uh, in abundance of possessions. Man, we, you need to tattoo this on your forehead backwards so you see it in the mirror every day. Your life doesn't consist in abundance of possessions. You know, everything in our culture, everything in this world is tempting you to say, this is where you'll find your life. This is, life doesn't start until you have this vehicle. Life doesn't begin until you live in this zip code. And you say, that's baloney. A lot of people in great zip codes are committing suicide. Because they've, they've, found every, they've gotten everything they ever dreamed of, and they found out it's still empty. See, most of the rest of us are just happy to travel and never arrive. We're happy to travel towards what we think will bring us happiness and never arrive. But the people that do arrive, most of them are depressed. Most of them find life incredibly empty. And they kill themselves. In many cases. Life is never in possessions. It's only found in God. Your life is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. You're never defining life by possessions. So greed brings about a distortion in what life is all about. Now, Jesus comes to a very convicting unexpected example here in the parable. And this is where it gets difficult for us, you good Midwesterners, with our hard work ethic. Verse 16, he says, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he's using a guy as an example, and he's not the guy that we would expect to use in a greedy situation. You think, oh, a tax collector, they're really greedy, right? 
because they stole from people and they kept all their wealth like Zacchaeus. But he's using an upstanding farmer. A guy that makes his living in a, in a hard-working, upstanding way. And we love farmers in the Midwest. I mean, Larry and Jack and, and Wendell, you know, used to be a farmer. We just love our farmers, and they're great people. We typically think, what could be more kind than a farmer? You know, just look at Larry's smile over there, you know? <laughs> what could be more kind than a farmer? And so Jesus is going to use this example that really goes after us Midwesterners. Because I tell you one thing about us Midwesterners, we work hard for what we get. But that tends to give us license to think that it's ours. The harder you work for your stuff, the more you think it's mine. You know, I joked around with Jack that I was going to talk about him. And, of course, Jack's a farmer, too. And uh, so I'm getting back at him now. But our hard work ethic is, is oftentimes what funnels us into our greed. Now, this guy is blessed by God. Okay? Without question, he's blessed by God and runs into a very natural problem. I have too much. Okay, And then we see a little bit of a monologue here. And the favorable circumstances take a, diff, a, a very disturbing turn as Jesus lays this out. He, sa- he gives this monologue. Jesus says, He thought to himself, verse 17, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Notice these pronouns here. I, my. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This hints at a terribly wrong perspective. All these I's and my's and myself's and me's. It it suggests exclusive self-interest here. This guy's not making any mention that he's blessed by God. And there's no mention that he's thinking about other people. It's like, I worked hard. I'm going to spend it on me. And then he comes to his devastating conclusion. What am I going to do with it? I'm going to spend it on leisure and self-indulgence. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Is this not the American dream? That you would spend the majority of your life after college until age 60-something saving up, storing up, getting enough of a barn together of money so that you can sit around on a beach somewhere and collect shells until you die. Isn't that what it is? Eating and drinking and and laying around by the pool until you die. That's what you're sold like every day. I mean, remember those commercials that, that came out not that long ago by that investing firm? What's your number? You know, People are carrying around numbers like 2 million or 3 million or 1 million something. And what's the number that you need to retire at your current level of income? And, and people are walking around with these numbers. Just imagine those as huge barns on their heads. Okay? That's what it is. It's just how much do you need to store up so that you can lay around and do nothing the rest of your life? This is the most adamant disagreement with the idea of American retirement. Now, if you get to the place where you don't have to take a paycheck from a job, great. That's fine. That's fine. But understand that the call of a Christian is that we never, ever stop doing the work that God has called us to. And we should never make ceasing work our goal in life because work is a good thing. Work is something given to us by God. If God someday frees you up from working for a paycheck to working for Him, then praise God. But you'll always be working for Him. You'll always be advancing God's kingdom. You'll always be making this earth more like the earth that is to come when Jesus returns. 
You never are called in the Bible, in the Scriptures, to just sit around and wait to die on a beach somewhere. You can go to the beach for a couple days, but don't go there eternally. Don't go there to just wait to die. There'll be lots of beaches in the new earth. Just wait for that time. Meanwhile, people need to hear about Jesus. There's work to do. There's good stuff going on. There's stuff that's going to satisfy you. Serving your Savior. This guy's future is entirely self-centered. There's no God and there's no others. We see God's reaction here. And this is a big ouch if you're this guy. Verse 20, But God said to him, You fool! There's like a few words that you never want to hear from God. And that is one of them. Fool. In the Old Testament, this means one who acts without God or without wisdom in regard to coming destruction. God's calling this guy a fool. Ironically, the years of leisure this guy has planned for are cut dramatically short by the one who owns his life and all his stuff. The one who has real authority. See, this guy, he's got such short-term perspective because he's so deceived. He thinks that this is all his stuff. He thinks that his life is his. The ownership thing is, is the big issue. And then God demands his life and calls him to an account. He had to show an account for the borrowed time that he was given by God on earth. Every day of ours is borrowed time. You realize that? Every moment, every breath, everything that we have is God's. It's all borrowed. And this guy has to give an account and he says, Look, God, look at my barns. And God is not impressed, to say the least. He says, you fool. It's such short-term, narrow perspective, and now you're dead. That's all you have to show for your time on earth. Friends, what are you going to show when it comes time to give an account for the days that God has borrowed to you on earth? What will you have to show? You know, John Piper is famous for his book, Don't Waste Your Life, and and there he he talks about how many American Christians... Um, on that day where God calls them to give an account for the time that he borrowed to them on earth. And they will have nothing to say but, Lord, look at my shells. Look at my collection of shells. Because they spent the last 20 years of their life on a beach somewhere gathering shells. And they have nothing more to show for it. And he'll say to them, you fool. You thought nothing of investing for eternity. You thought only of yourself. So God calls this guy a fool. I pray that it would not be so for us. I pray that it not, would not be so for me, for you. He's calling us to something different. Jesus, point number three, calls us to do the opposite. Jesus makes a statement here, which is a direct contrast in verse 21. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich to God. So there's this direct contrast. Storing up stuff for you, for self, for themselves, and this storing up treasures with God, being rich towards God. It's between self and God. Which one is it going to be? And Jesus makes this contrast. He says, what, what it will be? Daryl Bach, who writes a great commentary on the book of Luke, says, the parable does not condemn wealth per se. There's nothing wrong with money or stuff in general. Okay? He's not condemning that. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a glass of wine or good meal or anything like that. What he's condemning here, he says, rather Jesus' complaint is against the person who takes wealth and directs it totally towards the self. 
That's the problem here. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to make any money and you need to be like the ascetics, the monks, who gave away everything and, and make their own clothes. He's not saying that here. Okay? What he's saying is something really wrong when you take everything that God has given you, you view it as your own, and you use it entirely towards yourself. Martin Luther defines sin as the self bending in on the self. That's, that's the definition for Martin Luther of sin. It's just all selfishness. Everything you have is directed towards you. So how are you doing? Are you using the resources that God has given you for you? Or are you using them to become rich towards God? You, know, you might say, well, what, is it, what does it mean to be rich towards God? How do I get rich towards God? I'm hearing you, Pastor Dave. I want to be rich towards God. I don't want to be like the rich fool here. I don't want to be rich in wealth that's going to last for maybe a day, maybe five years, maybe ten years. You know, 50 years if you're really blessed. I want to be rich forever. I want to be rich towards God. How do I do that? Very simply, you invest in the things that God cares about. Matthew 25, whatever is done for one of the least of these, you've done for me. James 1, uh, pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the orphan and the widow. Matthew 28, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. So you invest in the things that God cares about. You invest in missions because the gospel needs to go to every people group. People need to hear what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. And that takes money. It takes plane tickets. It takes Bibles getting translated into people's languages. It takes people going over there and living and being Christ to those people. We... You know, it takes a lot of money to make sure that water projects happen in certain countries so that people don't die, that little kids don't die before they're age five. We have the ability and the great privilege and the joy to do that. And it makes us rich towards God. You know? Jesus tells the rich, fool, the rich young ruler in Matthew, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. So you get treasure in heaven. That's how you become rich towards God, is you invest in the things that God cares about, and namely, that is people. You invest your life in people for their good, for God's glory, for the advancement of the gospel. I wonder if if we got a vision as a church for becoming absolutely stinking, filthy, rich towards God, what that would be like. What a whole church, what a whole nation of Christians who are just like obsessed with becoming stinking, filthy, rich towards God. You know, if you just started imagining this God portfolio, where you're like going to get rich towards God and you're sitting down with your financial planner and he's like, so have you thought about retirement? Have you thought about the next 30 to 50 years? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about the future, all right. And, and he goes, okay, so you know, what are you... Well, I'm actually thinking more about 30 million years from now. And he'd be like, well, that's a lot longer term than I planned on talking about, you know? What if you got real, like real long-term perspective? You're like, I'm storing up my treasure somewhere else, man. And so you're given to this missionary and you're, you're saying, oh, I'm going to sponsor this kid and tell him about Jesus and I'm going to make sure he goes to school and he's got food to eat and I'm going to take care of this water product over here and I'm going to make sure that I'm involved in this organization because they really care about the least of these and they do it in Jesus' name. They're bringing the gospel with them. What if we got this vision for being a church that was just excited about that? See, some of you guys, you're, you're, you're just thrilled with life because you're such generous givers. Honestly, this is a harder sermon to preach in life, church, because you, I think of you as very generous people. But don't, don't let that off you. You're not off the hook. Jesus is still calling you. Watch out for greed. It can still affect generous people. It can creep back in. All right? Don't, don't let the ball get rolling the other way. Keep giving. 
Some of you may be really bound up in this. Okay? You may be really bound up with this vice of greed. And as I said, a vice is a habit. It's, it's a habit of the soul. And equally, virtue, the virtue of generosity, is a habit of the soul. So it's something that you need to cultivate. So if you're really struggling with this, I want to give you two big helps today that have really helped me. They're scriptural, but you might not have thought of them in this way before. And the first way is something physical. The second way is something mental. And then we'll be done, all right? The first help is tithing. Now, we don't preach tithing here because the New Testament really doesn't talk about it. Okay? It tells you to be a generous giver, to give with a cheerful heart, and to give what God has laid on your heart to do so. And frankly, this church is in better financial position than it ever has been. Because you guys, for most of you, if you gave 10%, it'd be a discount, right? It'd be like, hey, that's all I have to give? Because you give more than that. You give to all kinds of things, and we're not worried about you. Um, But if you really struggle with holding on to stuff, tithing's a great discipline because you're giving off the top. You get your paycheck and you say, before I spend everything on myself, I'm going to recognize that everything I have is God's. So you take that 10% off the top and you give it. Now, if you don't want to give to the church because you think I'm after your money, then give to something else that God loves because I'm not after your money. Um, like I said, we're doing great. Um, but give to, you know, give to orphans or something like that. All right? Just give to something that God, that invest in something that God really cares about and do it with your 10% and that will discipline you. Um, I love how Rebecca DeYoung puts it. Uh, so she treats tithing as a spiritual discipline, and I think it has a great place for that. Um, that's one of the things that's really helped me. Uh, it, she says, the point of tithing is not to rigidly conform to a code of behavior, which is usually how we think of it. And churches preach that because they have big budgets and stuff, and I get that. But it's really not very New Testament, so we should probably leave that alone. Um, but, and it often can lead to legalism and self-righteousness. I give my 10%, therefore I am saved. That's bogus. You're saved by grace. Um, so I don't care if you're given one, two, or nothing, 10%, nothing. You're not saved by what you give. All right, so let's make that clear. She says it's not to rigidly conform to a code of behavior, but to reform our hearts so that we learn to give, not because we ought, but from gratitude, joy, and love. This is about discipline. You know, and we've lost some of the disciplines in the church. You know, being sanctified, friends, is very hard work. Very hard work. Getting saved is easy. You just, it's by grace. You didn't do anything. But then being sanctified um, is very, very difficult work. Becoming like Christ is difficult work. It's never about earning, but there is a lot of effort involved. So it's effort, but never about earning your salvation. Okay? So for me, um, tithing is like inoculation against greed. It's like I go into the nurse and she gives me a shot against greed every month. I'm like, oh, yeah, my money's not mine. It's God's. Oh, yeah, he provided for me. Give me the inoculation. Give me the shot. Because over time, who knows? Maybe I would say, yeah, I'm being pretty generous. I put like five bucks in the plate. And maybe I think that was generous over time because greed would start to creep in. But when you start off giving a chunk like 10%, that's like, ouch. There's some pain in that, isn't there? And then all of a sudden you start saying, hey, it's kind of fun to give. And then you're giving a whole bunch over here and giving to this thing and that thing and this person and that thing. And then you're like, whoa, I never realized how great it is to give. And wait a minute, doesn't Jesus say that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. And then you start to realize the promise is true. It's not about hoarding things for me that I find life. I find my life in Jesus Christ and he calls me to give. All right, so tithing, if you're really struggling. Next thing is a mental thing. This really helped me. You, if you're really struggling with this vice of greed, and if you think you're not, then you probably are, that remember the generosity of God. 
think often on the generosity of God. All right? I'm so glad that our God is not greedy. Do you understand the implications of this? You know, greed is kind of like taking your stuff and going, you know, just grabbing onto it, holding tight. Nobody's going to take it. You've got this tight, gripped thing on your stuff, on your money. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He, meaning God the Father, who did not withhold, He didn't do this thing, His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not surely give us all things? He didn't withhold. He wasn't greedy. He didn't say, I'm not giving my son for you. Come here, Jesus. I'm going to hold on to him. He gave him. He gave him up for us all. For God so loved the world that he gave. Our God is a great giver. He's a very generous God. I'm so thankful that Jesus wasn't attached to his wealth. 2 Corinthians verse 8, chapter 8, verse 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. This is what I'll do. I'll start feeling like, oh, I don't want to, I'm giving a lot to God. I'm, oh, I'm giving a lot to this. Oh, I really can't afford that. And I'll start getting this, this mindset and the greed starts taking over a little bit. And then I'll say, wait a minute. What did God give for me? Wait a minute. Remember our God is a generous God. Wait, remember that Jesus left all his riches, became poor so that I can be rich. Wait a minute, Dave. We're going down the wrong path here. I'll start thinking about all oh, the great cost that I'm, I have given up to be a Christian and to be, do a life in ministry. And, and that's just the most ridiculous thought experiment ever because of what God has given for us. We shouldn't even be talking about what we've given up for him. You know? but, but this is a mental exercise. You feed yourself on the generosity of God, how, how much he has given so that you can have life. Friends, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, we will be freed from our greed. And that we'll find life in modeling our generous God. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would come in now and seal this by the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would protect us, Lord God, from this vice. And just as you've pulled me out of it numerous times in my life, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pull us out again. The the places of our hearts that have gotten trapped and bound up and strangled um, by this ferocious vice. Would you free us? Would you bring liberality? Would you bring generosity into our hearts? Would you bring a vision for our futures that is being incredibly rich towards God? Um, Would you give us compassion for those things that you care about, Lord? And would you set our sights on the world and your kingdom as we freely give what you have given to us? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.